I have never felt ashamed of who I am. I, I am a black female. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. My name's Emma Fowle. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and much more. It's now available in a print and or a digital subscription and you can download the Premier Christianity app and get exclusive access to new daily content wherever you are in the world. Subscribe now for just £3.95 a month at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Olivia Amity. When Olivia was appointed as the Executive Director of Elim Pentecostal Church in 2018, she became the first woman and the first person of colour to hold the role. An ordained minister, Olivia has also planted churches and been a senior manager in the NHS, seemingly blazing a trail wherever she goes. So, Olivia, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your uh, background, first of all? What, what was your home life growing up? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were from Jamaica. They came over in the 60s, along with a number of others. You know, it's that sort of uh, the Windrush generation, really, who came over. And I was and my sister were born to them while we were in the UK. Um, so although they had a Christian upbringing, they weren't practicing Christians. We went to church only at Easter. <laughs> Easter and Christmas were the two times that we went because uh, they were fairly new to the UK at that time. I remember church being a really stuffy affair. You know, lots of white people that I hadn't come across before because my world was very, very small at that time. And so it was very odd for us, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed church as far as I could, but just got bored by some of those sermons that went on. So that was my early upbringing. So I always had a knowledge of God and peculiarly a love for God, although I wasn't quite sure my parents didn't expound it to me. It wasn't until I was 16 years old when a friend at my senior school invited me to uh, to come to church with her, a holiday club. And I went and then I thought, oh, this isn't so bad. And she invited me to what was then called a revival, which was evangelistic meetings at night. And I went with another friend of mine and we sat there. And I remember sitting in the first row. Why I was in the first row, I have no idea. Sat in the first row. And at the end of his talk, he made an altar call, what was called an altar call then. And I cannot tell you how I got to the front. I just cannot tell you how I did that. But I was at the front. I was on my knees. I had the most amazing experience of God that I could only say was probably akin to Paul when he was on the Damascus Road. It was, all I felt was a shower of light. And, you know, I, I, I knelt on my knees a sinner. I got back up speaking in tongues in a way that I, I didn't even know what that was, you know? So it was a, a wonderful, wonderful conversion for me. And I thank God for that because I think over the 40 odd years since, I've learned to, to draw back on that at my encounter, especially when I've gone stale. That's amazing. So I also became a Christian in my teens from a non-Christian home. So it, it is beautiful, isn't it? How God sort of welcomes you into his family when that's, that's not your background and you can't always articulate why, you know, you're drawn to church. But um, obviously you were as I were. So in 2018, you became um, part of the executive of the Elim Church in the UK and in doing so became the first female and the first person of colour to be appointed to their exec yeah. which um is pretty impressive but i'm assuming between 16 year old olivia and 2018 executive director of elim olivia um a few things happen i know you've got a, a long history in in the nhs and in charities would you like to talk to us a little bit about that what, what was your journey between um, becoming a christian and ev eventually ending up in church leadership 
oh gosh that's such a long journey where do you start with that I, let me just pot it down I think uh, once I became a Christian um, I knew that I wanted to do something that helped others and I mean that's a cliche isn't it but that's really what I wanted to do but being a classic introvert, it wasn't easy to do that and to find out what I wanted to do. I teetered on the brink of becoming an air stewardess to being a teacher, but I knew that I had a love of biology. And so I started off my early life in the NHS as a radiographer. And it was interesting then as a radiographer that when I started, there were very, very few black radiographers. In fact, I you know, all through my career, I've been dogged with being the first black in doing certain things. Now, I wasn't the first black radiographer, of course not, but uh, in my cohort, I was. And that was interesting in itself because the early days of doing that meant that people didn't see me as a radiographer. They knew what a nurse was, but I wanted to be a physiotherapist. And I knew no black physiotherapists. And even though I applied, somehow I just was not accepted as a physiotherapist. So I went to radiography and I was accepted there. But it was interesting, my interactions at that early stage were always fraught because when I'd walk into an operating theater, I'd walk into onto the wards, do x-rays, people would assume that I was the cleaner because of being black, I assume. I'd go into theater where you have to do x-rays in theater and people would, would assume, well, why is the cleaner in here? And I'd have surgeons saying things derogatory things at times and that time it was expected you know but even as a radiographer I was ambitious and I've had so many uh, stories I could tell you of trying to jump grades it was like dead men's shoes then you could only move up if somebody had left or died (laughs) I tried really hard to jump level so that I would be promoted and and it became really difficult Uh, in the end I decided to apply for management training and was fortunate enough to be selected onto the management, the NHS management training scheme, which lasted two years, but was a fantastic experience. And the premise of being on that is that you will um, become a chief exec. So that was what we're working to. They're training you to become the leader in the NHS. And that's what I aspire to become. I thought if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be the best one, perhaps another, the first of of somebody else. And I wanted to, to do that. So roll on 2016, 17, and I'm thinking, I've been in the NHS a number of years. I've done well. I've achieved well, done some really fantastic things, loved working with my colleagues, have given back, but started to think, is there something more? There's something more than this I could do. And so the role came up for the executive director in Elim. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to apply for that. And it had come up several years before, a couple of years before. And I thought, I'm not going to apply for it. Why? They only have men. They only have white men. And I do not fit the bill for that. But on this particular occasion, when the role came up, I remember thinking, I'm not sure. It was a time when I was thinking, what do I do with my career? You know, it's time to go to to get promoted. And I thought, I'll only go for the job if someone calls me and tells me to do it. That's, That's the honest truth. And two people called me and said to me, there's a job that's come up. I think you're perfect for it. And I went for it. And long story short, I was determined to be who I am. I'm a black female. I can't pretend to be anybody else but who I am. And I was fortunate enough after 32 people in a very long interview process to be appointed. And that's God, I think. You know, I've worked hard to be where I've got to. But it was the right position at the right time. And I absolutely love it because I'm also an Indian minister, which I didn't say. I'm also a reverend. Yeah, I, I read um, that you you also lead a church at the same time as being part yes, of the executive. That's right. Elim. Tell us about that. What what's it like? Were you also <laughs> the first female leader in your church as well? No, well, <laughs> no. Um, it's it's again. It, the story is so so bizarre and so um, such a long history of that. I have never felt ashamed of who I am. I I am a black female. And if anyone has a problem with that, it's really not my problem because I've never known anything different. I've always been a black female. (laughs) So I don't know any different. And I remember when I was going through ordination um, or to apply to be a, a minister in training, I was interviewed by about four senior white men and I went in and you have to do a mini preach. And I did that. And then I sat down for the, for the grilling interview and they asked me a question. And I thought, I don't know how to give the answer. The reason I didn't know how to give the answer was because I thought 
it's going to sound rather pompous of me to say so. And I don't think a man would have a problem saying that. They asked me, what do you want to do? And I thought, should I just say, I just want to serve God. And, you know, I, I felt I gave that sort of off the cuff standard answer. And then one of them said to me, now, Olivia, I want to truly tell us what you want to do. So they saw through it right away. And it's probably because I was umming and ahhing. And I said, to be honest with you, I really want to plant a church, pioneer a church. I really want to do something that's different. And they said, well, why don't you do that? And I said, because I was told I couldn't. You know, what you do as a female is either lead women's ministry, children's ministry, youth work. But you certainly don't become a senior minister or plant do that and that's what I was told although it wasn't explicit it was what they meant and they said well absolutely we do not concur with that you can do anything you want to do go for it and that was permissive they prayed with me and I was like right I'm going to do that but in my training learned off the best and then decided that I'd pioneer a church of my own and and I did that I'm no longer the senior pastor. I've now passed that on because being the executive director and a senior pastor is, is a recipe for disaster and yes. burnout. So what's the differences? What's, what's different about working in the NHS compared to the church? Or are there any similarities? Oh, there are loads of differences. You know, the more I think about what I do in the NHS, the more I realise that God has a plan. I was fortunate enough to, to be trained as one of the potential future leaders, as it was, you know, you, you are going to be a leader, so you need the best training. So I had the best training to learn how to be a good leader of the NHS. And the NHS, as everyone knows, is extremely political, which means whenever a new party come in, comes in, whatever persuasion they are, they change stuff. And they change stuff sometimes. I wonder if it's just for the sake of changing stuff, to stamp their identity on it. And that causes no end of problems for those of us who work in the public services, especially the NHS. So someone will come in and they'll say, no, we no longer want you to do it that way. We want to do this way and we want you to do it quickly. And so the, the, the trajectory that you've been on for a number of years changes and you've suddenly got to find a new way of doing things. Or they'll find pots of money that suddenly come out in January that you have to spend by March. It, it's that kind of thing. So it's, it's very changeable. And you're there because you want to make a difference for your patients and the people that you serve, especially when you're in leadership. And people always think about doctors and nurses. They forget that managers are an integral part of the NHS. We are the ones who make sure the money goes to where it needs to go, that the services are set up and paid for, that they're effective, that we procure the right stuff. And so when it keeps changing, it can be debilitating because you always have to think about how do I now motivate my staff to think about a new way of doing things. But that said, you are used to change management. So you, you're able to turn on a sixpence, right? Roll on and come into the charity sector. And it's very different. <laughs> it's very different because often people have been in their roles for a long time. Uh, they've, they've evolved from other roles. Sometimes they don't work efficiently. And having had that experience, you're thinking, how can I make a difference here? And I've learned the hard way sometimes that you have to get people alongside you. And so that may mean taking several steps backwards. But you also have to have the fortitude to lead and to lead with conviction and to lead fairly but to lead nonetheless, because you want the best for your organisation. And the great thing about working for Elim is that it aligns totally with my vision, which is to see people come to Christ. And to do that, believe it or not, it's not just about evangelism. You have to have really good business processes that keeps the organisation safe. And so I've learned that and I've got loads of skills that are immediately transferable. So you can see basically God going before you throughout your career, leading Absolutely. you step by step. Absolutely. I remember when I first sat around at the board table and they asked me, you know, Olivia, this is your first day here at the board. How do you feel? Oh, I feel OK. Thank you very much for welcoming me. They're all men, all white men. And they're, and they're lovely, lovely men that I work with. And they're really great. How are you? I'm fine. And then they said, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I told them a bit about myself. And I said, um, you know, it was really God leading me to the NHS. And I, I'm really appreciating all the years that I spent in the NHS. And one of them said to me, uh, the Reverend Simon Foster, he said to me, actually, Olivia, I think you, the NHS trained you for us. And I was putting it the other way around, you know, I've, I've, all, I've got all this training, I've done all this, I've been senior. And he said, yeah, but the NHS 
did that so that we could have you for here. And I thought, that's great. Mm. So the skills that I bring, you know, it's, it, there's a credibility there because I'm also a reverend, but I'm also a business person and I want to do things and I want things to succeed and I'm going to do it the best way that I can using the flavor and the packaging that God's given me. So I'm a black female. So that means that I don't take any nonsense. I come from Jamaican parents who are like, if they say, does your bum look big in this? They'll say, yes, it does. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> they tell you the truth. They're truth tellers. So, you know, that's where I come from. So you work with, you said, a, a team of white men. Do you have plans to change that? I don't have plans to change it. They have to do that. I'm the, they, they are the national leadership team. And these men, I, I respect so much. They have never, ever made me feel insignificant or different. They are funny. <laughs> they are, uh, they've got a real heart to change things. And part of that is, is around what does the leadership look like? several years from now there's a reason why it's been like that for a hundred years but there's an appetite to change that and they are doing so and looking at that and as the leader of the racial justice task force uh, the, the person who's been asked to front it for the next uh, year or so there is a real appetite to see things change a leadership that doesn't reflect the the, the flavor of its people or if its constituents need to be examined, doesn't it? The NHS have done some work around that and uh, in trying to make sure that its leaders do reflect their workforce. And so I've got that precedence here. You have to work more slowly, more deliberately. You've got constitutional changes that you have to look at. But I know that we've got the right people around the table who have got an appetite for that. And of course, you've got to bring people with you. Anything that's enforced isn't great. You have to do it so you bring people along with you. And I think the tide is, and the timing is right to start to do some of that work. And they are working towards that. So I think it will change in the next, certainly in the next 12 to 18 months, I think they would be looking to change that. I think there is this feeling that it needs to come up from grassroots level, doesn't it? Because yes. as you've said, the reason that you're on the exec is because you have the skills and the experience and the exactly. to serve in that position. If we don't have a good diversity of leadership within local churches and people that are getting that on the ground experience, including women and people of colour, mm. then we can't expect the senior positions to reflect that can we absolutely and one of the things we're trying to do is to look at the pipeline how do we mm. feed women people of color and i'm not just talking about black women, i'm talking about elim has a plethora of different nations how do we make sure that that we make the way we smooth the path for them but not so smooth that anybody gets through we want people with the right skills we, we are in a challenging time you know, the, the events of the last week have taught us that, haven't they? You know, we're there mopping up after the pandemic. We do so much interventional stuff and we have to write, have the right people with the right fortitude to do the right jobs at the right time. And that's biblical. You can see that with Nehemiah. You can see that with Daniel. He would choose the right persons for the right time. I think of Deborah leading an army. I think of all those things. And so I'm never put off by the fact I've never allowed my my race or my gender to be a to be something that inhibits that what I'd like to do in this position is to make sure that that we train my my successors to have the right skills whether they be male or female black or other you know that that'll be fantastic and I think we're at the right time to do some of that now you touched earlier on, on what it was like to come to the UK and to grow up in a church that was predominantly white um, was that hard? Do you ever get tired of blazing a trail or? No, not really. <laughs> I don't, you don't know that you're blazing a trail, do you? <laughs> I mean, when you're when you're one year old, you don't know that you're blazing a trail. You just know that oh, this is this is the body I was born in. I was born here in the UK. My parents came from from Jamaica. Uh, I remember going to school and thinking, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I was fascinated by white people. Fascinated because if you come from a world where everyone around is a person of colour and then you 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 see and you talk like, I was, fascinated, I was fascinated by their hair, by blonde people, especially those who are redheads. I was like, this is a beautiful thing. All our hair is black. But, you know, I've grown up the same way as anybody else. I've just been 
one of those people, I think, who just never seen no as an answer. I've just been the person that God has called me to be. Now, you know, here I am talking to you on a national platform. And I think how on earth does that happen? Because I am a classic introvert on an introvert scale. I am 11 out of 10. It's ridiculous. And yet still, God has a sense of humor in allowing someone like me to do the things that I do um, and to be the first of many. But I've, the fortitude has always been, let's try it and see. And I've failed so many times. I've gone for promotion and, and been turned down one, sometimes because I've just not had the skills. But that's always made me think, right, I can do better. What do I need to do? Because I really want to do that. So I've not only been in the NHS, I've worked as a probation officer, you know, worked with murderers and arsonists. You know, I've done stupid things like uh, being an illegal immigrant somewhere and, and having having been deported. <laughs> I've done the stupidest things. But all of that just weaves to a rich tapestry to, to show that you have got the resilience to stick at some, you know, you've got stickability to do it. And it's great stories for my, for my son. <laughs> So what has, what has lockdown been like for you? What have been the challenges? I think with everybody else, the uh, the challenges of, of being locked away, it, it did become difficult at times. I, I was on my own. My son was at university. So you just become lonely. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm a single parent. So I was just lonely sometimes. Um, but I've got great friends. Zoom became my best friend. <laughs> we had to move church online. So like everyone else, it has been difficult, but also a source, again, of great resilience, you know, to find those pockets of time when I didn't have to commute. My commute is about three to four hours a day because I work in Malvern. And so it was great to use those times for other things. It must have been really challenging for you as a a national leadership team to be supporting local churches struggling with so much all of the time. Yes. In so many different situations. But I I would say that it became our finest hour because um, Apollo 13 is my favourite film. So I just love that film. I said, this is going to be our finest hour. And it absolutely was because we had to step up to the plate. I mean, we national leadership team and myself working directly to them. And we were able to guide our churches, lead our churches to their risk assessments, help them to think through what their ministries would look like entering into the pandemic, in the pandemic, and now coming out the other side. And I think they really appreciated that that guidance and fortune and being there to, to, to for them to pick up the phone to, to say, look, I've got this issue. Where they normally probably wouldn't have engaged with us before, they certainly did. And, and it was great to be able to serve at a time like that. So I've got great memories of, of that time. I think it was especially difficult. Uh, it's going to be difficult coming out of it. For many of our churches, as in many other organisations, charitable especially, but God's been good to us. And I think we come out now with a new mandate and a new mission to serve and to serve well. And I think as as being the executive director of such an organisation, we're taking the opportunity to actually look at our processes and procedures, see what we could do better and what do we need going forward. And that's been a a great indicator for us. So we've got... um, We've got changes that we have to to make going forward, but I think we're in the best position to know the way to take, really. And what's your hope for the UK church coming out of the pandemic? What do you you hope that it can step up to be or achieve? Such a great question, Emma. I think I want, I would like us to rediscover our roots. I, I tell you what I did, we discovered over the last several months, and that's the power of prayer. You know, I've come to this lockdown. It's been one of the most difficult things because um, I caught COVID. My father caught COVID and and he died. So that's been an incredibly difficult time of loss for me. So hard because my my dad was in lockdown. I'd gone to Jamaica to get him. So he always comes over to make sure because he has had a heart complaint and to make sure she had the right treatment. And I undenied about that. Do I bring him? Yes, because I'll keep him safe. And so I can't tell you, you asked me, and I just remember this, and I'm saying this for the benefit of your listeners, really. You know, the plan was to keep him safe, to make sure that he was okay. Um, And I'd lost lots of friends, as you know, the Black and Asian minority ethnic populations, those people of colour were disproportionately affected by COVID. And so I lost many friends 
I think the la- when I've counted at that time, it was about 12 people that I knew that I'd lost who had died. Husbands, friends, colleagues. And then um, my father came and then despite all my efforts to keep him safe, he caught COVID and, um, and I did and we were both really, really ill. My dad subsequently didn't die from COVID, but he died from the complications of some of that. And the loss of that was devastating to me because I'm exceptionally close to my father, my sister and I. And so the grief of going through that time was was hard, still is, because it's so new, because it's only a few months old, really. That was Olivia Amity speaking to me, Emma Fowle, here on Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to The Profile, and we'll be hearing more from Olivia right after this. These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. You could get a pack of balloons. A DIY face mask. Or some plasters. Ouch. Or one pound could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews and loads of Christian news articles. All in Premier Christianity. In print, online and on the app. For just one pound a month in the Summer Sale Limited offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. It's now available in a print and or a digital subscription and you can download the Premier Christianity app and get exclusive access to new daily content wherever you are in the world. Subscribe now for just £3.95 a month at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. Today on the show I'm speaking to Olivia Amity. Executive Director of Elam Pentecostal Church. Let's listen in. We serve a phenomenally great God, a man acquainted with our sorrows and griefs, who knows what it is to be challenged, who knows what it is to be in a nation that has been overtaken by events, who knows what it is to be with the poor, those who've lost, those who've sorrowed. So he's journeyed with, he journeyed when he was here physically, he journeys with us now, How do we journey with others? One of the great things that I've loved is that those of us with big churches and those of us with small churches couldn't get access into them anyway. (laughs) We've had to find other ways. It was a great leveler. How do we reach people now? What we don't want to do is to go back to being the same people that we were before, to simply just think there was a major interruption. We just want to go back to doing what we want. What we've got to do is to put people at the heart of who we are to probably rediscover our mission and our ministry. It's sharpened why I do this, why I left the NHS and the lucrative career to do this. I do it because I love Jesus and I want our organisation to be in the best place. I'm here because I've got a story to tell and I know that the church is so important to this country still. It really is. And we've got to find ways to engage with the poor, to engage with those of us who grieve, to mourn with those who do mourn. And that's what I'd like to see us rediscovering. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I'm so sorry to hear about your father. That's yeah, that's okay. Such a hard time. Hey, but he became a Christian. I didn't say this. Oh, okay. So the miracle is, so excited about this, he wasn't a Christian. He got sick. There was a woman that's a friend of my sister who was the only one who could reach him because we couldn't talk to him because we couldn't get in. And she risked everything by being courageous and spoke to him about Jesus. And in speaking to him about Jesus, she led him to Christ Mm. on his, we didn't know that he wouldn't come out. And that is the greatest thing. Yes, I miss my father, but that's the greatest thing ever. He became a Christian and he's now with Jesus. I'll see him again. What a great story, all because of a courageous woman who decided, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to talk to your dad about Jesus. And my dad was in a side room, so she walked in. She talked to him about Christ. Isn't that great? 
That's amazing. Amazing. So in sorrow, there is, you know, there's there's so much that happens. And you're right that it is so beautiful when there are those moments of yeah. God in in even in the the darkest, most horrible times. Absolutely. And the courageousness of that young woman to say that, knowing that, you know, you just don't do that. You know, we hear stories all the time of nurses or doctors who've shared their faith or prayed with someone and they've been taken, you know, drawn over the coals for it. Some have even lost their roles or been demoted. She had the courage to ask my dad the question and to lead him to Christ. And he became a Christian even when he didn't come out, you know, he's in heaven now, thank God for that. And did you ever find that hard? Was there ever conflict for you between your faith and working for the NHS and um, and what you've just spoken about, that lack of freedom? Never. Again, I've made no apologies. All my colleagues and the ones that reported to me knew I was a Christian. Uh, And I made a great deal of that not by being explicitly overt, I didn't have the cross erected on my desk or great big pictures because you just couldn't do that. But what I did do was make sure that I was available. So, for example, when I was going into ministry um, and decided to become a reverend, I told them it was, you know, I'm, I'm going to become a reverend. And I'd make some jokes about it. Now you'll have to not swear in when we have our meetings and things. But, you know, over that length of time um, when I led, I uh, had the opportunity to share my faith with with my colleagues. Now, did they come? No, they didn't. But I tell you what happened just before I was due to leave the NHS. I didn't know I was leaving. I was given the opportunity by someone our social on, on the social committee. They were tasked with making sure that we had a good time because we had lots of fun. And they said to me, Olivia, I don't know much about Easter. All I know is that it's about bunnies. I'm like, mm-hmm. I think that kind of that's wrong, and and chocolate eggs. She said, you know, I think for because of diversity, it'd be really good to hear what the meaning of Easter is. I'm like, she said, would you lead? That? I said, absolutely, I will do that. So she said, that'd be great. Why don't you do something? And we have about eighty staff working. Why don't you do something that that highlights? That? I said, yes. I said, you do know I'll mention Jesus because Easter is about Jesus. She said, uh, okay then. Well, that was it. I had the permission. So I thought, right, I've got a choir in. <laughs> I got, I got, um, I shared the gospel for two minutes. We had singing. I told them the true meaning of Easter. And I had 80 people, 80 of my colleagues were uh, hearing the gospel in two minutes of what Easter means to us. Jesus died. He rose again. Now, Is that a bit difficult? Of course it is. But I did it because I thought, you know, I'll never get that opportunity again. And I didn't. She didn't ask me to do it the next year because I'd left by then. But I'll tell you what the upshot of that was. After that, a couple of people came to me at my desk and said, Olivia, I don't know what happened. But when you were talking about Jesus, something in me started to be moved and I started to cry. And But nobody said that publicly. They all came to me one by one, you know, uh, talking about what they had felt. So my faith has been explicit and open. And, uh, you know, they know that I operate from the from the moral standpoint of being a Christian, which means I'll be fair. Um, I'll say it as it is still, but I'll be fair. Mm. So I have had an opportunity to share. Brilliant. Who were your faith heroes growing up? Who are the people that you looked up to in the Christian faith? All characters in books, because being an introvert, I liked books, so I hid away in books. So my characters were Smith Wigglesworth, that shows how old I am. Tozer, I loved Tozer. David Wilkerson, those are the people that, I think Hal Lindsay scared me because it it was all about apocalyptic times. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be ready. There's a song that was about, um, you know, you'll be left behind when God comes. And I'm like, all oh, right, I've got to be sharp now. I've got to, you know, I'm looking for him, I'm walking to, to school and I'm thinking any minute now, God could come for me. Where would I be? We, we, I grew up in a church where you didn't go to pubs because if Jesus came for his church and you were in a pub, you were not going. <laughs> or if you were in a swimming, because yeah, we, we couldn't go swimming because... Um, at that time, it was very much a holiness movement. So you had to dress right and be in the right place. So those were the heroes of faith. And, and of course, lately, um, I'm, I'm really thinking about Pete Gregg at the moment, about 24-7 prayer. 
And that's really impacted my life again, just understanding and rediscovering the beauty of prayer and solitude, contemplative uh, traditions again. Mm. Um, and there are other great writers out there, so many. That's the thing. How do you how do you do that? But my heroes at the time were definitely Smith Wigglesworth and Tozer. That sounds like you had a, a fairly interesting church um, childhood. <laughs> sounds a bit stricter than mine. That <laughs> was very strict. I mean, we thought those liberal Christians, they were never going to go to heaven. I'm sorry. I mean, wearing short sleeves, what? very strict I mean it's changed now but you know that that was how it was then I became a Christian at 16 so that was really odd for me but you know did you ever rebel against it did you ever kick back or not yes I did um but I kicked back many years later um and that was what on earth is all that about you know and that was because when I was 16 I hadn't been exposed you know I'd come from Church of England to this church and then absolutely brilliant church for me it's a right place it helped me to learn I learned my bible I learned the books of the bible learned how to quote them frontwards backwards every which way and learned scripture so it was it was brilliant and it gave me the confidence to be able to speak in front of others you know there was no uh, male female gender bias where only male spoke no if you was if you could if you had something to say you said it male of it and so I got the confidence from doing that so that was my upbringing and I, I will always treasure that but then the liberal the liberalness of other Christians are like what's all that how can you wear shorts in church what no you don't do that trousers in church for a woman no that's a bit liberal but when I when I started to go to college I realized that but these people love Jesus they do so what's all that about then so if I'm strict and I don't wear jewellery and I don't do that, and they, they do, and they love Jesus the way I do, then, then there's something wrong. So I did start asking questions. Why? Why do we do this? Why don't we do that? And that was frowned upon at that time. And I ended up actually becoming a backslidden Christian at one, part, at one point because I thought, if that's what Christianity is for you, that it's a set of rules of do's and don'ts, then I don't want to be there. And I think that led me to a place of, right, I don't want to do this anymore. And I walked away from my faith for a couple of years at that point. So my rebellion, because it wasn't, I was asking legitimate questions, but because they weren't answered in a way that would be loving and gracious to me as an individual, I wasn't being subversive. I wasn't being difficult. I was just asking a question. Why, why can't I go swimming when there are male people? Why, why can't I do that? And the answer was, well, because we say so at that time. It's not like that now. Then that that just put me off the only Christianity I'd ever known. So I walked away. And what brought you back again? That's an interesting story. I have to write a book, you know, Emma. I think you should. (laughs) What brought me back was because I ran away. Part of that part of that running away was to run away abroad overseas. So I ran away to America because I just thought, I'm big now. I don't need God anymore in my life. This is fine. I'm going to do what I like. And I went to America and I lived there um, underground as, a, as an illegal. <laughs> Got a fantastic job, fantastic apartment, illegal. And then I was traveling from New York to Canada and they asked me a question and I answered with the truth rather than the lie that I'd you know that I'd been living with for two years and I they were like okay and then I got caught so I was deported and between two burly policemen wow (laughs) to the UK and when I came back I was pretty broken still far from God but recognizing now I recognize that God had a hand in that because I was up to no good there really to be fair I, I, I wanted to come back to God in that time I'd wanted to come back but because I was living a lie, I didn't know how to do that. Because to say to, to come back to God was, was going to be a hard thing to do because it meant then giving up what I had or, and then admitting that, I, you know, all that sort mm. of stuff. And so God just said, right, OK, that's fine. I know that you want to come back, so I'm going to just deport you. So that's fine. <laughs> okay. I, was de- I was deported between two burning policemen um, on the plane back here. Like, what do I do now, God? And couldn't find my way back. And it was it was a hard thing because, I'd you know, I'd left as a disgruntled Christian. I'd lived a disgruntled lifestyle. I'd been up to no good, been away from God. And now I didn't know how to get back. And it was my sister that said, look, I know that you're trying, 
you know, I just couldn't pray even. And she said to me something that I'll never forget the words. I'll never forget. She said to me, I'll bridge the gap for you. I'll stand in the gap and I'm going to pray for you faithfully until you come back. And she did that for over a year and slowly the defences broke down and I started to, to warm to God again. And that was no, by no means because I was really hardened by then. I'd live, lived a lifestyle that wasn't Christian. And so coming back was the hardest thing because I felt ashamed as well, mm. you know, because I now had to face people said, what are you doing back here? <laughs> Why are you back? And coming, going back into church and that sort of thing. So that was a hard time. And that's over, what, 20 odd, nearly 30 years ago now. But it, it, it was a difficult time of coming back to God. But it made me realise just how faithful God is, you know, that God does allow U-turns and he does take you when you truly repent and decide that, that you know, to turn away from a lifestyle, to come back to him. And he does rebuild you and he does give you your colours back and he does cover you in a robe of righteousness. And he does all of those things for you. And, and that's my story of redemption, a real one. That's um, a, a beautiful thing that your sister said to you. That's a really powerful yeah. statement, isn't it? And a, and a really um, beautiful reminder for us to do that yeah. for people that are... Absolutely. So thank you, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow the two of you became Christians, but your parents didn't. Is that is that right? That's absolutely right. So mm-hmm. we came um, as a result of neighbours. We lived next door to yeah. some neighbours who took us to church. and invited us and we went um and became christians she became a christian before me i became a christian the night after so she's older by one day we got (laughs) miraculously saved and my parents didn't as i said my dad became a christian last year at 86 and my mom became a christian many many years afterwards um and we were we had the privilege of of helping her to to do that so they did become christians yeah it's such it is such a amazing story that I hear so many times. It's exactly yeah. the same story in my family. I became a Christian as a teenager, and much later, my parents and my brother became yeah. So, like, it just it always reinforces for me the importance of child outreach in churches because so often it does happen that way, doesn't it? That friends, yes. neighbours take you to church, you become a Christian, and then absolutely, and just being patient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. just being patient I mean my parents didn't want me to become I think they didn't want me to become to feel that I'd, I'd uh, I'll miss out on stuff because the only church then it was pretty strict as well and and I think they didn't want me to feel to, I think they respected God so much they didn't want me to make a decision to accept Christ and then to think oh now that's in the, you know now that I get to 20 something I don't want him any longer she said mm-hmm. my mom used to say to me when you become a Christian, make sure you know what you're doing, you know, don't turn your back on him. And of course I did that several years later, but, um, but you can see where she was coming from. And you know, when she became a Christian, she certainly became one. And I also think it's very interesting what you touched on there about sort of turning your back on a, on a church um, that wasn't prepared to have hard conversations with you about why things should be a certain way. And I, I think for young people growing up today, that's, that problem is just getting bigger isn't it now we're having to deal with so many complicated issues and speak to our young people about things that even 25 years ago we would not have considered to be questions in the church you know what does the church think about marriage what does the church think about sexuality yeah all these complicated issues which you know a generation ago weren't even issues no one talked about that because we knew what the bible said and that was the way it was and you didn't Mm. question it and now um we're having to and as part of a leadership team trying to navigate church changing so quickly through a society that is is changing at such fast speed must be incredible absolutely absolutely and trying to preempt that and and taking a stand and i think it's only going to get harder for us as as christians and as as churches you know we, we stand um, on certain doctrines that, that we believe are biblical and yet there are others who would profess that they also stand on biblical doctrines but have the opposite view to us mm-hmm. to ourselves how how do you navigate that when you're talking to young people especially those who are struggling with mental health issues or their sexuality or um you know what what to do for their career there, there are a number of issues that have been condensed you know we've got social media now everything you do is in the glare of of the world knowing what you've done what you you know and and you're at the you could be held hostage 
to people who just want to troll you or, do, you know, all of those things. How mm. do you keep your young people safe? I think if I was going through that time of deliberation of trying to find my way in the glare of social media that it is now, I don't know if I'd ever find my way back to God. I, I don't know how I would have done that. So we've just got to be mindful about that as we as we make Christ relevant and make him known wherever we are in whatever we do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, as the mother of a, a young man yourself, you probably have, have to navigate some of that yourself at home. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, too, have two teenage daughters. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Many conversations. But I think, you know, what you were what what you were saying and, and certainly some of the things I've been reflecting on recently is that actually as Christians, um, one of our primary um, causes to love and to make space for that conversation. And like you were saying, referencing patience, just being able to be patient um, in the way that we listen to the concerns yes. of the, the people around us and, and how we answer biblically and, and with love is a really yes. challenging thing for the church to em- embrace in, in yes. an environment where for a long time it's sometimes been used to just talking and expecting people Absolutely. to take the I, I, and even I find it difficult at times. How do I navigate? How do I navigate this? How do I have those hard conversations in our churches? You know, why, when they ask me the why question, how do I answer that in a way that's loving, supportive, but also biblical? Mm. And that's what we're going to have to deal with. And there's some really tough issues, I think, coming down down the road for churches. And, and you know, love is great to love, but, but part of love is also being disciplined. God loves yeah. us but he disciplines us. The Bible tells us that. It's really quite expressive about that. You know, he chastens us, the the Bible tells us, that God does that. He disciplines us. He talks about the tree that's pruned, which means that there's going to be times that it's not not pleasant, you know, for us as Christians. Why? Because he loves us. And so when you're dealing with people, whether you're dealing with people in a work setting like I am sometimes, or, or with your own children, church, wider community you sometimes have to speak hard truths don't you um you can't be so loving that you just accept everything but you also have to give people the understanding that this is the the the, the platform that I stand on this is what I truly believe please know that I I love you but or I love you and I would like to to explain why I have this perspective. It's how we do it, not the dogmatic way that I sometimes grew up with as a young Christian, where it was, you do as I say, and because I've interpreted the Bible this way, you will not, although it never said in the Bible, don't wear trousers, something about not wearing man's apparel. And so we assumed that men in the biblical times in first century Palestine wore trousers. Uh, They didn't, you know, so (laughs) it's one of those things, having those hard conversations. It's truly a difficult time. So what's been um, one of the biggest challenges you've faced since you've joined the exec? I think that's probably bringing people along with me and learning how to to temper my enthusiasm. (laughs) I want change now, you know, and learning that people aren't there with you, Olivia. You're you're way ahead. And not because you're right uh, and not necessarily because you're wrong, but because you're just you're just like, right, let's gallop ahead. I can change this. I can do that. Well, you've got to learn that you've got to bring people along with you. People will see eventually. And sometimes you have to be, you know, you've got to be courageous and to stand. But the, the challenge is allowing people to see that some of our processes aren't necessarily right at the moment. Um, and people have come to see that now. And how to deal with that in a compassionate way, but also a way that's firm, because we've got to keep our organisation compliant and charitable and true to its aims and beliefs that's that's been tough but i i work with an incredible dedicated people but they're there because they love people and they want to make a difference Mm. so that's always great and we have great fun and you've actually got sort of a really interesting background because of the background you have because you've worked in the NHS and because you've actually been a church leader as well and a church planter and now in your your role within the national team a lot of people don't do both bits of that do they they're either very sort of management focused or they're on the sort of what I would call in inverted commas the spiritual end of church leadership <laughs> and don't want anything to do with admin or management or processes or structures and <laughs> within the church there is that tension isn't there between the things that we see as spiritual and in inverted commas and between the things that we sometimes negatively label as being business 
but actually I'm guessing you would have some very robust answers to those kinds of criticisms. Of course I have, because that's nonsense. It really is. And it's, it's amazing how my background has allowed me to plug that credibility gap because I've got credibility with those who are ministers who say, well, I don't want to do this because it's too tough. You don't know what it's like being a minister. Yes, I do. Yeah. And then there's a the business side that says, oh, that's too business focused. We don't want Yes, I know what that's like. So I, I, I hold both things. And that's great because it plugs that gap. Um, and, and the thing is, business is what we do in our everyday life. You may label it, but it's what you do. You get up, you get a mortgage. Well, you've had to apply somewhere. Someone's had to tell you yes or no. Or did. You've had to look at your budget every month. Have I got enough to be able to go on that luxury holiday or the holiday? Or shall I just go to Skegness instead? It's no different to running a church. You know, if you run a church as a senior leader, you've got to know where the money's coming from. What or where does it go? It's not to say that business is divorced from ministry. And this is one of the things, the difficulties that I sometimes encounter, just to go back to your previous question, is helping people to understand that as the exec director, and although it's probably business focused, it's just as much ministry as preaching to someone else, because I'm making sure that our organisation is in the right place and has the right money to focus on the things that we think are our mission and mandate. And that means working efficiently, making sure that we've got the right building blocks. The story is told in, in the biblical story, you wouldn't go to war unless you'd counted your soldiers. You knew how many you were going to do. You wouldn't build a town unless you knew how many. Nehemiah did the same thing. I'm going to do something. I'm going to put up a wall. Have I got the right people to do it? I'm going to have to make sure that I post families along the wall to make sure that they work and they defend. Daniel did it, Joseph did it as prime minister. You wouldn't say to, to, uh, to Joseph, oh, I don't know, you've just got too much business focus there, my mate. But when it comes to the modern churches, oh, too much business, you don't want the church to be a business. Leading is always a business and making sure that you've got the right monies and the right resources to do so is just good stewardship. That was Olivia Amity speaking to me, Emma Fowle, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like this, you can download The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile.